0: Hey, everyone. It's Manoush Zomorodi here. As you may have heard, I am the new host of the TED Radio Hour, and brand new episodes will be coming your way in just a few weeks. So while the team and I work on those, I want to share some of my favorite episodes from over the years. On today's show, we're looking at how the conversation on sexual violence and harassment has changed in the years since Me Too, how the movement defined an era of reckoning, and where we go from here. It's called Gender, Power, and Fairness. And this episode originally aired in February 2019. Enjoy.
1: This is the TED Radio Hour. and on the show today, ideas about gender, power, and fairness. And just a quick warning, there are stories in this episode about sexual violence and harassment that may be difficult to hear. Hi, Tarana.
3: Hi, how are you?
1: Hi, it's Guy Raz here. How are you? Good. Um, thank you for coming in.
3: Thank you. I'm sorry for being late My name is Tarana Burke, and I'm the founder of the Me Too movement. So it 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 came to me in parts, and it started the idea of wanting to address and deal with sexual violence. Certainly came to me before the words Me Too were the tool that I was using to do it. So, um, you know, I'm a survivor of sexual violence, and had been grappling with my own journey around healing, had been grappling with what that looks like and just and how it was affecting me and just coming to terms with that. And it was just painfully clear to me at some point that we didn't have any conversation about sexual violence and I saw so much. I had had a, a moment in my life where, um, I met a child in my early 20s who was in my camp, who was, I used to run a youth leadership program, and basically confided in me that she had been molested by her stepfather. But she did so at a time when I really did not know what to do with that information. And the only thing that came to me to say was that this happened to me too. You know, like this thing that, it just didn't feel like the appropriate thing to say at the time, but that's what was like ringing in my head while she was saying it like it was a moment of me confronting my own issues as well but so that words me too came from that moment because it was after it happened and she like walked away and the moment was over I realized I wish I had said that to her because I wish somebody would have said it to me you know I wish I didn't go through my formative years thinking I was the only person in the world. Me and Maya Angelou were the only two people in the world that this had happened to, which is what I thought for a while. I often think about the numbers of adult decisions I made between six and, like, 12, all related to going through and experiencing sexual violence. If there was somebody who would have said, listen, I don't know what's going on but this thing happened to me and if you are experiencing it you're not alone you're not nasty you're not bad and it's not your fault if there was somebody who would have just interjected that I think it would have changed the trajectory of my life
1: So this, I mean, this idea of Me Too really began as a way to, to recognize and to sort of say, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. And that, that is really how it began. And about 10 years after you created this idea, it exploded into the consciousness of the world with reporting and social media and mm-hmm. um, what do you remember about how that began?
3: Well, even before that, I want to just say, before Me Too exploded into the world in 2017, it started as this idea of making sure that survivors knew they weren't alone. But it quickly evolved into also knowing that we have to do the work of ending sexual violence collectively. And so, more than just a declarative statement, it was about survivors coming together to organize and do the work of healing ourselves and our community. So when 2017 happened and it exploded, it was, you know, I was initially very worried that that sentiment would be lost. You know, we live in a viral age and I've clearly seen numerous other hashtags go viral. And I've seen them come and go. And then I've also seen black women and people of color at the center of those things be removed or be replaced or be... um, Erased in one way or another. And so all of those were concerns in probably the first few hours. But it was necessary because there's not a scenario that I can think of that I could have generated myself to bring the work of ending sexual violence into the public consciousness in the way that it has.
2: The Me Too campaign is giving a voice to many women who say they've experienced sexual harassment and abuse. Prompting the hashtag Me Too campaign.
1: Me Too movement. Me Too.
2: Me Too. Mobilizing women seeking
3: office. Also known as the Me Too Congress Act.
2: The guy behind me pretending to perform a sex act on me with all the other guys watching and all the other guys laughing
0: I didn't tell anyone afraid that I wouldn't be believed
1: every woman of my vintage
0: I am here today not because I want to be
1: has not today. just one story
0: I am here because I believe it is my civic duty
1: but many stories I said it's because time's <laughs> The Me Too movement has changed how we think and talk about gender, power, and fairness. Behaviors that were once downplayed or even ignored in the workplace, in social settings, even at home, are now part of a dialogue that's moved beyond just a hashtag. There's now a conversation between women and men that's affecting real change. So today on the show, we're going to explore how this movement moved the world defined an era of reckoning and what it will take to move it forward. And for Tarana Burke, the way ahead will be necessary, but not easy. Because for every step forward, some days it feels like there are giant leaps back. Here's more from Tarana Burke on the TED stage.
3: I've been trying to figure out what I was going to say here for months. And so I searched and searched for days on end, trying to find the right configuration of words. And although intellectually I could bullet point the big ideas that I wanted to share about Me Too and this movement that I founded, I kept finding myself falling short of finding the heart. I wanted to pour myself into this moment and tell you why even the possibility of healing or interrupting sexual violence was worth standing and fighting for. I wanted to rally you to your feet with an uplifting speech about the important work of fighting for the dignity and humanity of survivors. But I don't know if I have it. The reality is, after soldiering through the Supreme Court nomination process and attacks from the White House, Gross mischaracterizations, internet trolls, and marches, and heart-wrenching testimonies. I'm faced with my own hard truth. I'm numb.
1: Yeah. I mean, it must at times feel discouraging.
3: You know, it's some mixture of disappointment, frustration, and sadness. But I feel sad sometimes that so many of us lack the ability to empathize with people, to try to understand. Like, one of the things that became painfully clear for me around the um, Kavanaugh hearings with Dr. Ford testifying was just how little people understand what survival looks like. We have sort of a law and order SVU idea of what that looks like. And so when I heard the backlash that, that she got, a lot of the like, well, how could she forget this? And and it was a lot of it came from other survivors, right? There were people who wrote on our pages like I was assaulted when I was six and I remember every single moment of it. And she's lying because how could she not th- forget this? and that? And I thought, you know, we don't have enough conversation or even examples in pop culture of what the act of surviving looks like. And it doesn't look the same for everybody. So, like, I identify with her because as a survivor of sexual violence, one of the ways that we survive is by practicing forgetting. (laughs) Right? Like, I actually have a bad memory because I've spent most of my life trying not to remember.
1: You know, um, most social movements start out ahead of where the culture and the society is—it's it's, that's why they start, right? Because they start a conversation. There's a backlash, and then down the road, we sort of reflect on it and say, "Yeah, that was really important." But do you do you when you look ahead, you know, do you imagine this conversation leading to a better place in our lifetimes in in a short period of time?
3: I think of this in long term and short term. Hmm. So there's in the short term, I am very clear that this moment. Has started changing people's lives individually because I've heard over and over again this last year people coming to me saying, I thought I would go to my grave with this, but I was able to tell my mom, and my mom told me her story. I told my dad, and my dad told me his story. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I also think that people are ready for action. And so in the long term, you know, we can't go back. There's a Iyan Levanzant, the self help personality, uh, has a book called Faith in a Valley. And there's a quote in that book about when a light goes on and shows you something, you can't unsee it. So I don't think we ever go back from here. I think we continue to move forward. And when we get distracted by naming lists of predators and like, you know, these articles that come out and say, here's the 200 or 400 men who have fallen since Me Too, those things are distractions. People need to be called out for their behavior. But beyond that, their behavior doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in the context of a society that creates space for that kind of behavior. There's a little boy right now being socialized to disrespect women, to not respect somebody's bodily autonomy, to think that he's better because he's a male. So we can fire Bob from in accounting, and we can take so-and-so off the board, but if little Timmy and little Jamal are not learning and unlearning what we know now, then we're just going to create a replacement for them. So I think that the work that we're looking at moving forward is one helping people figure out where they fit in this puzzle. But also there's going to be a unrelenting <laughs> core group of people who are just absolutely focused on getting us to a world where people don't have to say me too.
1: That's Tarana Burke. She's the founder of the Me Too movement. You can see Tarana's full talk at ted.com. On the show today, ideas around gender, power, and fairness. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the Ted Radio Hour from NPR. Hey everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to Capital One. With the Capital One Venture Card, you earn unlimited double miles on every purchase, every day. And you can use those miles toward travel expenses like flights, hotels, rental cars, and more. Just book and pay for your travel using your Venture Card and redeem your miles toward the cost. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Credit approval required? Capital One Bank, USA NA. Thanks also to Indeed. When it comes to hiring, you need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. With Indeed.com, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on qualified candidates using an intuitive online dashboard. And when you need to hire fast, accelerate your results with sponsored jobs. New users can try for free at Indeed.com slash TRH. Terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. Offer valid through March 31st, 2020.
3: Astrology is as old as civilization itself, and today it's easier to access than ever before thanks to the internet and smartphones.
2: This week on Throughline, how astrology almost went extinct and made a remarkable comeback.
3: Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time
1: to understand the present. It's the Ted Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz and on the show today, ideas about gender, power and fairness. And ever since Me Too helped to open up a whole new conversation, it also helped to unearth stories about all the daily indignities that up until now had been a normal part of women's lives.
0: I can tell so many similar stories. One, you know, where I was coming home quite late at night and it was dark. And as I walked past two men, one of them very casually turned to the other and said, I'd hold a knife to that. Hmm. The kind of thing that makes you feel terrified, but you are so used to it happening that you end up hunching your shoulders a little tighter and walking a little faster and rushing home and then carrying on because you're taught by society from a very young age that this is a normal thing to experience as a woman and you just have to get on with it.
1: This is Laura Bates.
0: I'm an activist and a writer.
1: And back in 2012, Laura launched a website called Everyday Sexism, where people could share their experiences and discover that they weren't alone.
0: It started because I had a week during which a bunch of these experiences happened quite close together, one of which included being on the bus um, on the phone to my mum on my way home one evening and suddenly looking down to realize that the man next to me was stroking my thighs and my legs and eventually kind of putting his hand in, in my inner thigh and coming up towards my crotch and being on the phone I was in that bubble that you're in where you don't quite feel like you're in public so as I stood up and moved away from him I said out loud to my mom on the phone I'm on the bus this man just groped me and everybody on that bus heard and everybody looked out the window And it sent me such a powerful message. This isn't something to talk about. Don't bring this up. Nobody will respond. And actually, years later, I looked back on it and realized it sent such a powerful message to the man on the bus as well. You Mm. can get away with this. Even if the person says out loud what is happening, nobody will challenge you or react it just for the first time ever made me sit down and and ask myself why is this normal yeah which led me to just start asking other people particularly other women and girls mostly have you ever experienced anything like this and I honestly thought that maybe a few of them would have a single story to tell me and instead it was a flood it was every woman I spoke to and it was hundreds of stories not just one or two That was really what prompted me to start the Everyday Sexism Project. It gave people a place to talk about it, to be heard, to be believed. But it also, I hoped, could create a kind of database that would help other people to realise the scale of the problem and not to ignore it anymore.
1: Laura Bates picks up the story from the TED stage.
0: 50,000 women from all over the world added their stories in 18 months. They were women and men from countries everywhere, people of all ages, races, ethnicities, sexual orientations, gender identities, religious and non-religious, disabled and non-disabled, employed and unemployed. We heard from a seven-year-old disabled girl in a wheelchair and a 74-year-old woman in a mobility scooter who encountered almost identical experiences of screamed abuse about female drivers. A female reverend in the Church of England was asked if there was a man available to perform the wedding or the funeral service. Nothing personal. A man was congratulated for babysitting his own children. A woman working in the city was asked if she would sit on her boss's lap if she wanted her Christmas bonus. A woman who worked in a video store found that every time she went up the ladder to get fresh stock from the storeroom, her boss would smack her on the bum, and when she came down again, he'd look down her top and say, you know why I hired you. A waitress was told to make a choice between having an abortion or resigning when she fell pregnant. A 15-year-old girl wrote that she knew that she was clever and funny and she could do anything she wanted to do, but really it didn't matter if she became a doctor or a lawyer because she knew, from the world around her and from the media, that the only thing that really mattered was whether she was sexy, whether her breasts grew and her waist narrowed, and whether boys found her attractive. A 13-year-old girl wrote to say that she'd been showed a video of sex at school on a boy's mobile phone, a video of porn, and that now she's so scared to have sex that she cries every night because she didn't realize that what sex was, was the woman hurting and crying.
1: So it's clear that you are trying to make a bigger point about, about this behavior that is all around us and how it's all connected. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of people see stories about like Harvey Weinstein or or Bill Cosby, and they'll say, you know, those people are ill. You know, what's going on in their minds? Mm -hmm. And it becomes easy to distance ourselves from it, from everything
0: honestly, I think that it's it's an excuse. It's a way not to confront the reality of the fact that actually we are talking about a really, really widespread problem Mm. within our society, within the men that we know and socialize with and go to work with and interact with. But also, if you look at the men that we see being arrested for these kinds of crimes, they are stand-up guys in the community. They are men with large networks of loving friends and colleagues and family. They are men, of course, like Harvey Weinstein, who mm. is enormously respected and successful. And I think we have to confront that uncomfortable truth that these are not outliers. They're not freaks. They're not monsters. They are normal men within our communities.
1: Once you started to gather all these firsthand accounts onto the site, what started to change?
0: So the project it started out as something very quiet, as, as sharing our stories on the internet and, and people having the choice to come and see those stories. But very quickly for me, I think, the sort of anger that fueled those stories drove me to take those offline and to do that we took specific sections of the stories that we'd received and we put them directly in front of people who had the power to change that one specific thing. So we took the stories that we had just received just from women on buses and tubes and public transport and trains and we took those to uh, the British Transport Police and used them to retrain about 2,000 of their officers to change the way in which they dealt with sexual offences on the transport network because at the time survivors were not feeling believed or supported, and so they really weren't coming forward. And so far we know that that project, Project Guardian, has raised reports of harassment and assault on the Tube by up to 20%. We were able to start talking to girls at universities about the UK definition of sexual assault, which is very simple. Under UK law, if someone touches you anywhere in your body and the touching is sexual and you don't consent, and they don't have reason to believe that you consent, it's a form of sexual assault. And girls would come up to me saying, but that can't be sexual assault because it's normal. It can't be sexual assault because that's what happens when I go on the night out with my friends. It can't be sexual assault because I wouldn't be able to call it that. People wouldn't take me seriously. I couldn't go to the police. And we were able to start to change that attitude and able to start to get reports of people who had reported things that previously they'd had no idea they had the right to object to. But we also started hearing people's individual stories of standing up. They were stories of women and men around the world finding their own very unique and individual ways to stand up that worked for them and made a difference in their lives. And if the Everyday Sexism Project has shown anything, it's that this is a continuum. All of these things are connected. The same ideas and attitudes about women that underlie those more minor incidents of sexism and harassment that we're often told to brush off and not make a fuss about are the same ideas and attitudes about women that underlie the more serious incidents of assault and rape. And what that means is that by helping to contribute to a cultural shift in the way women are perceived, whether it's in the media, in the professional sphere, in the social or economic sphere, we help to shift the way that they're perceived and treated in the other spheres as well.
1: So, Laura, you started this project in 2012 and and you gave your TED talk in 2013, and and in the talk you mentioned this idea of needing a, a major cultural shift. And I just wonder, are we seeing that cultural shift happening now, or or is this something you imagine is a decades-long, centuries-long process?
0: I think that we are seeing this enormous conversation, this moment of reckoning. We're seeing millions of women all over the world for the first time feeling able to speak out about what's happened to them. And that shouldn't be underestimated. That is a big deal. Do I think that this is something that we will see a complete end to in my lifetime? No, I think that there is still too far to go to say that with any confidence. I do feel positive that we are making progress and we will continue making progress. But I also think that there's a very long way to go and it will take a very long time. And I caution against the fact that people like to say, well, you know, change is happening. Things are improving. If you look back a few decades, things have got much better. And their implication often is leave it alone. Things are getting better. If we just wait patiently, it will sort itself out. And what that fails to take into account is that things have got better, but only because of Legions of activists, of women in particular, of feminists who have fought tooth and nail for those changes to happen every step of the way. And so we can't stop fighting now.
1: That's Laura Bates. She's a writer and founder of the Everyday Sexism Project. You can watch her full talk at ted.npr.org. So when most men hear the term sexual harassment or gender violence, from your experience, what do
4: they think that means for them? Yeah, I think most men don't see these issues as their issues, um, even though the overwhelming majority of domestic and sexual violence is perpetrated by men. And a lot of men will say, um, these are problems, but they're not my problem. This is Jackson Katz. run educational programs, gender violence prevention programs in colleges, in the sports culture, in the military, in, uh, in schools. Just looking at all the issues that relate to how gender and specifically masculinities contribute to men's violence, both against women and against um, other men and against themselves. So how did, you, how did you first get involved in this work? It was as basic as this. I was living in a co-ed residence hall. And I remember feeling quite free to come and go as I pleased and being able to walk home from parties at two or three in the morning without really worrying about my personal safety. The women in my floor, on my floor had a completely different experience. They were constantly worried about how they were going to get home, who they were going to get home with, constantly changing their plans based on you know, safety issues. And then I remember thinking, as a man, how would I feel if I had to worry constantly about my personal safety and I couldn't come and go as I please, and I remember thinking I'd be ticked off.
1: Jackson Katz picks up his idea
4: from the TED stage. I'm gonna share with you a paradigm shifting perspective on the issues of gender violence, sexual assault, domestic violence, relationship abuse, sexual harassment, sexual abuse of children, that whole range of issues that I'll refer to in shorthand as gender violence issues. They've been seen as women's issues that some good men help out with. But I have a problem with that frame, and I don't accept it. I don't see these as women's issues that some good men help out with. In fact, I'm going to argue that these are men's issues, first and foremost. Now, obviously, obviously there are also women's issues, so I appreciate that. But calling gender violence a women's issue is part of the problem. This is one of the ways that dominant systems maintain and reproduce themselves, which is to say the dominant group is rarely challenged to even think about its dominance, because that's one of the key characteristics of power and privilege, the ability to go unexamined, lacking introspection, and in fact being rendered invisible. Men have been largely erased from so much of the conversation about a subject that is centrally about men. And I want to share with you this Um, exercise that illustrates on the sentence structure level how the way that we think conspires to keep our attention off of men. It starts with a very basic English sentence, John beat Mary. John is the subject, beat is the verb, Mary is the object. Now we're gonna move to the second sentence, Mary was beaten by John. We've shifted our focus in one sentence from John Mary. The third sentence John is dropped and we have Mary was beaten and now it's all about Mary. We're not even thinking about John, it's totally focused on Mary. Over the past generation the term we've used synonymous with beaten is battered so yet we have Mary was battered and the final sentence in this sequence flowing from the others is Mary is a battered woman. So now Mary's very identity is what was done to her by John in the first instance. And those of us who work in domestic and sexual violence field know that victim blaming is pervasive in this realm. When we say things like, why do these women go out with these men? Why are they attracted to these men? Why do they keep going back? Why was she drinking with that group of guys in that hotel room? But let's be clear, asking questions about Mary is not gonna get us anywhere in terms of preventing violence. We have to ask a different set of questions. The questions are not about Mary, they're about John. Why does John beat Mary? Why is domestic violence still a big problem in the United States and all over the world? What, what's going on? Why do so many men abuse physically, emotionally, and other verbally, in other ways, the women and girls and the men and boys that they claim to love? What's going on with men?
1: So, right now, we're in a, a very complex moment where For so long, women have silently endured, you know, everything from humiliation to serious violence and and assault. And many prominent men have been exposed as perpetrators of of all different kinds of abuse. But at the end of the day, there is a perspective that it doesn't matter what the act is. You know, abuse is abuse, and it needs to be called out. That is complicated for some men who say, well, different behaviors should be treated differently and should be punished differently. What what do you think about that idea?
4: Let me just say, as somebody who does this work, there are differences. There are nuances. You can't just make categorical statements about forms of abuse. But all of it is wrong. Any form of abuse is wrong. But of course there's complexities. And what we're talking about here is changing social norms about what is acceptable. Because I think that's really the the ultimate issue here is that so many of the problems that are surfacing are not just about individual perpetrators who are horrible men. And I think that's why Harvey Weinstein and you know Bill Cosby, while it was important that as high profile men that their cases became, you know, sort of cultural touchstones, it also distorted the issue a little bit because their behavior is so awful that a lot of men could then distance themselves from them and say, that guy's just sick. That's right. That's not me. Right. That's not me. I think that the real reckoning is not with the pathological individuals, but it's with the norms that have guided so many of us for so long. This came up in the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. I mean, a big part Mm. of the subtext of the Kavanaugh hearings was how are we going to think about behavior from decades ago that was in some cases seen as normative in certain parts of male culture, but is no longer being seen as normative? And how much are we going to retroactively hold people accountable for that behavior? It wasn't about whether somebody believed her or him. I think the vast majority of people in the country believed her. Sure. But I think the split was between people who believed her and said that as a result, his behavior made him unfit for the Supreme Court. Hmm. And the other half of the country said, we believe her and his behavior is okay because even though it's not great, it's kind of like, that's just how it is and get over it. Hmm.
1: So here we are two guys. And let's be honest, I mean, over the course of my life and and I'm sure over the course of your life, you have heard other men speak disrespectfully about women. You've heard um, pretty vulgar things from other men. You may have said it, I may have said it in my teens. That's true, I mean, pretty much every man that you know and that I know has heard these things. Mm -hmm. Over the course of much of my life, that language, that behavior was around, and it's still very pervasive.
4: That's right. One of the points that I often um, make to men is that you don't have to be perfect as a man to speak out on the issues of domestic and sexual violence and sexual harassment part of the process for men is to think about, okay, how have we contributed over the years, either through our silence or through our actions? And then how can we use whatever influence we have today in our own lives to get on the other side of that? And I think honesty works much better than self-righteousness. So for example, I never say that I have no sexism in my bones, or I've never acted out in ways that are sexist. But I'm also going to say that I'm not going to stop speaking out on these issues just because I'm, I don't consider myself perfect because there's no such person.
1: That's Jackson Katz. He's an author and anti-sexism educator. You can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about gender, power, and fairness. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey everyone, just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible, Salesforce. Have you ever wanted to know what Salesforce does? Salesforce is a customer relationship management solution. They give your employees a 360-degree view of your customers. That makes it possible for every department in your company to work together as one to deliver the seamless, personalized experiences that customers want. Salesforce, bringing companies and customers together. Visit salesforce.com slash learn more.
3: Astrology is as old as civilization itself. And today, it's easier to access than ever before thanks to the internet and smartphones.
2: This week on Throughline, how astrology almost went extinct and made a remarkable comeback.
3: Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time...
2: ...to understand the present.
1: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today... Ideas about the new conversation we're having around gender, power, and fairness. And just a warning, some of the stories and language in this segment may be hard to hear. Hello, this is Ashley. Ashley, good morning. This is Guy Raz. I'm the host of the program. How are you? I know your voice well, Guy. I know yours too. This is Ashley Judd.
2: And I am a writer, a humanitarian, and an actor.
1: Ashley was one of the first women to speak on the record about being sexually harassed by Harvey Weinstein. But she's actually been speaking out about gender violence for much longer. For years, she's been on the receiving end of intense online harassment. Harassment that is routine for so many women.
2: I would venture to say that I began receiving gendered hate speech and misogynistic messages on social media from the very moment that
1: I joined. Like in one instance at a basketball game in 2015, when Ashley tweeted a complaint about the refs.
2: The response to that was a huge sexist pile on, where it really started with, you know, the outrageousness of my thinking that as a female basketball fan, I was entitled to have an opinion about officiating to just a generalized, you should die, I want to rape you, I want to ejaculate on your face, you shouldn't be taking up oxygen, there was a picture of you, I wish it was a picture of your deathbed. You know, all this stuff that I got.
1: Ashley Judd picks up her story from the TED stage.
2: It is routine for me to be treated in the ways I've already described to you. It happens to me every single day on social media platforms such as Twitter and Facebook. And I have responded to this with various strategies. I've tried to rise above it, I've tried to get in the trenches, but mostly I would scroll through these social media platforms with one eye partially closed, trying not to see it, but you can't make a cucumber out of a pickle. What is seen goes in, it's traumatic. And I was always secretly hoping in some part of me that what was being said to me and about me wasn't true. Because even I, an avowed, self-declared feminist who worships at the altar of Gloria, (laughs) Internalize the patriarchy. Patriarchy is not boys and men. It is a system in which we all participate, including me. On that particular day, for some reason, that particular tweet after the basketball game when I was sitting at home alone in my nightgown, I got a phone call, and it was my beloved former husband, and he said on a voicemail, loved one, what is happening to you is not okay. And there was something about him taking a stand for me that night that allowed me to take a stand for myself, and I started to write, sharing the fact that I'm a survivor of all forms of sexual abuse, including three rapes. So I wrote this feminist op-ed. It is entitled, Forget Your Team." It is your online gender violence toward girls and women that can kiss my righteous ass. (laughs) And I did that alone, and I published it alone because my chief advisor said, please don't the rain of retaliatory garbage that is inevitable. I fear for you, but I trust girls, and I trust women, and I trust our allies. It was published, it went viral, it proves that every single day, online misogyny is a phenomenon endured by us all, all over the world, and when it is intersectional, it is worse. Sexual orientation, gender identity, race, ethnicity, religion, you name it, it is worse. Online misogyny, is a global gender rights tragedy, and it is imperative that it ends.
1: I mean, the digital space has opened up a whole new world that was almost unanticipated, right? When when this technology came out, I think most of us thought, well, this is going to bring the world together. It's going to democratize the ability to to amplify and share messages and views, but I don't think anybody anticipated that it would become this repository for violence.
2: I think it's a concentrated space in which violence against girls and women happen, just like Me Too and Time's Up pulled the curtain back from the everyday sexual aggression with which hundreds of millions of us live, the internet, I think, simply exposed some of the patterns of thinking that boys and men hold about girls and women, specifically the sexual objectification and commodification of our bodies. And, you know, I, I think that all gender and sexual violence is on a continuum. One end is nuanced and subtle. It's unspoken, but it's thought And then it's the microaggressions, and of course it goes all the way to the other end of the spectrum with homicide. And the Internet is a place where all of that can flourish. And I do believe that the Internet itself is neutral, and it's a tool, and it can be used for good or it can be used for ill. When it's in the hands of misogynists, it's a powerfully destructive
1: force. You know, I think there's stories we tell ourselves, right? Like um, you look at black and white films of angry mobs protesting against civil rights. And most of us will see those and think, who are those people? How could they behave that way? Right. Right. Um, And we think, well, we've progressed, you know. And I think there's a similar story we've told ourselves about gender equity, you know. But I wonder whether, do you think that social media has fueled a regression or do you think that That's just the way we have always been as a society, and social media just allows it to be amplified.
2: I absolutely believe that social media just exposes the thinking that was already there. And an example is, I was the speaker at Nashville Sexual Assault Center's recent annual fundraiser, and a man said something to me that was He made a reference to my pubic hair. So outrageous, so inappropriate, but that's what was on his mind, and he just said it. And the Internet has simply facilitated and exposed what is already on people's minds. And in that sense, it's a helpful tool because it shows us that our thinking needs to heal and to change, and that so much of what Me Too is really about. It's about centering survivors and it's about radical community healing and what's you know ultimately helpful about that remark that was made to me is i talked about it from the podium that night when i spoke i said look i'm here for an event about sexual assault and this remark was made to me by someone who's a good person with good intentions and puts their money where their aspirational at least values are and of course he knew i was talking about him And he's reached out to me and I've offered to have coffee with him so that we can hash this out. And when I can sit down with this guy and say, look, this is how it made me feel. And this is why I hope if that thought ever occurs to you again, that you have the integrity to examine your own thinking and change it and certainly not let it pass out of the gate of your mouth. That is so important. You know, we have to get together to do our radical community healing. There are a lot of solutions. Thank goodness. I'm going to offer just a few. And of course, I challenge you to create and contribute your own. Number one, we have to start with digital media literacy, and clearly it must have a gendered lens. Kids, schools, caregivers, parents, it's essential. Two, let's talk about our friends, men. You have a role to play and a choice to make. You can do something, or you can do nothing. Online violence is an extension of in-person violence. In 2015, 72,828 women used intimate partner violence services in this country. That is not counting the girls and women and boys who needed them. We need to grow support lines and help groups so victims can help each other, when their lives and finances have been derailed. We must, as individuals, disrupt gender violence as it is unfolding. And lastly, believe her. Believe her.
1: So, Ashley, you gave this TED Talk in 2016. And what was remarkable was that uh, just a year later, when stories about Harvey Weinstein came out, um, you spoke publicly about what happened to you. And, I mean, y- you were you knew all these things, and you couldn't talk about them on stage because of, I guess, the fear and the whole infrastructure of Hollywood that prevented people like you from talking about this for so long. I mean, you gave this talk, and yet there was there was so much more that you couldn't say, or I guess didn't feel safe saying.
2: Well, the good news is I'm a teller. And when I was molested for the first time, when I was seven years old, the first thing I did was run to two adults and express exactly what had just happened to me. Hmm. Now, they were neither equipped nor prepared to respond to me in an appropriate way because they said, he's a nice old man, that's not what he meant. And when, you know, I was harassed in that Peninsula hotel room in the summer of 1997 when I was making Kiss the Girls... My dad was visiting me from Kentucky, and he was downstairs in the lobby. I came straight down, and he could tell by the look on my face that something devastating had just happened to me, and I told him right away. But we didn't know what to do with the information except to try to you know, steer clear of Harvey Weinstein, which was a really difficult thing to do at the Peninsula Hotel. He loomed ominously large at that place. And then Variety was doing one of their women-in-film Issues and I was speaking with them, and they asked me, and this was in 2015, whether or not I had ever experienced sexual harassment. And I told them the entire Harvey story in even greater detail than is included in the New York Times piece that Megan Tui and um, Jody Cantor wrote. But the difference is the world wasn't ready to hear it yet, no one was paying attention. You know, and when I made the decision to be the named source in the New York Times, I went on a run on my favorite little country road near where I live in rural Tennessee, and I thought, you know, I've made tougher decisions. This is not a significant decision. It's simply my truth. And I am entitled to share my truth and to be autonomous and dignified and hold my head high in my lived reality.
1: What is it that, in in your experience, what is it that you think many men and some women don't understand about the conversations we're having around gender
2: now. I think that one of the difficulties for boys and men is to accept that this really is the water in which we swim and the air that we breathe. And that these microaggressions and more overt, explicit aggressions occur on a routine basis. And so it takes courage on my part, and my stomach even feels funny when I say that, to be really honest about my lived experience as a woman. You know, the invitation hopefully is that men can have the stamina to listen to our experiences in equal measure to the way that we have endured those experiences. And when I talk with men who are honest and vulnerable enough to express their discomfort, it's not a competition to say, oh, good, you're uncomfortable. Well, I've been uncomfortable for a long time. It's about... Empathy and shared understanding. Hmm. I recently spoke at the International School in Leipzig, Germany, and it was very interesting that the girls were crying because of the street harassment they experienced. This young woman shared that she saw a woman being harassed at a tram stop and all these people stood there and watched, and she was the one who walked over and disrupted it. And when she did, the perpetrator then followed her from car to car on the tram and then followed her home. And so the girls were already experiencing gendered violence, and interestingly, the boys asked more questions than girls, which is consistent with the data when kids get to high school. And so I said, hey, I want to be conscious and intentional here. I've called on about five or six boys in a row. I'd like to call on a girl. And this boy shouted at me, that's sexist. And I said, well, let's talk about that. And... It was interesting to experience a little microcosm of what we might call the backlash, but as long as we stay in dialogue with each other and we have the spaciousness to hold complexity and to hold paradox and to allow for everyone to be exactly where they are in their evolution of this journey, then we're going to get there together.
1: Ashley, there must be people who say, "Okay, I hear you, you know, you're 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 having these empathetic conversations with people, but like why, why should they get our empathy?
2: Systems of power don't change easily. And those with power are generally reluctant to let it go. But I can sit with those with whom I differ with dignity and respect, even as I oppose everything about the way they're thinking. And I don't know that I can explain that. It's just the way that I'm walking in my life right now. You know, someone asked me how I could forgive Harvey Weinstein. And I said, because I do it for myself. It's no favor to him. I do it for my own peace of mind to cut the string of resentment.
1: You can forgive Harvey Weinstein?
2: Of course. Of course. I don't, you know, he's a sexual predator. He's done reprehensible things that hurt hundreds of, of women. And, you know, my career is very different. My pocketbook is very different because of him. But I don't like to drink poison hoping someone else is going to die. Do you think things are
1: getting better? That this conversation is slowly starting to change things?
2: We are making strides. We are we are living in an age that is probably revolutionary. I think we'll look back and, and go, wow, you know, it was all happening. It was messy and imperfect and joyful and difficult and... Exciting and radical. I mean, I go to bed with hope and I wake up with hope. I've done a lot of work on that. I've been to treatment for sexual trauma. I regard my recovery as the most important thing in my life. I have a place to go and people to talk to and folks who understand. And the creation of, of egalitarian systems like Time's Up, you know, social movements like Me Too that allow me to have the dignity of my experience with my truth and my integrity without it being minimized the way it was when I was seven years old and I went to those adults and said, oh, no, 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 he is a nice old man. That's not what he meant. No, it is what he meant. It is what Harvey Weinstein meant. And it's not okay anymore. And that is that is a day that will come.
1: That's Ashley Judd. She's an activist and actor. You can find her full talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our episode on gender, power, and fairness this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out TED.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpur, Janae West, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, James Delahousie, and JC Howard with help from Daniel Shukin and Dareth Gales. Our intern is Katie Monteleone. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.